Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 284, Does the Bible Teach That God is a Trinity? Cole Tuggy Dialogue, Part 3. After our live dialogue from December 2019, which you heard in the last two episodes of the Trinity's podcast, Dr. Sean Cole didn't feel that he'd said all that he wanted to. As I mentioned at the end of the last episode, there's no shame in that. One always thinks of more than one could have said after a dialogue or a debate. And so Dr. Cole, also in December, went on his podcast and he devoted an entire hour to making up for this. He spends an hour trying to show that the New Testament, rightly understood, implies that God is tripersonal, that God is the Trinity. In this episode, I'm going to edit down his remarks, cutting out some inessential elements, shortening some things, so that I can offer some brief responses to these new arguments. So after he says that he didn't say all he wished he would have said in our dialogue, he adds... And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a positive defense for the doctrine of the Trinity, and I'm just going to lay it out there. He says that some of this may be a repeat, but he wants to be comprehensive. And so he starts off with his preferred definitions, and he insists that they're not his definitions, just these are the Orthodox Christian definitions that are important to understanding the Trinity. What I want to do is give you the confessional orthodox definition of the Trinity that the majority of the church has held to over the past 2,000 years. Oh boy, this is not off to a good start. Past 2,000 years of tripersonal God isn't so much as mentioned in the New Testament or in any other first century source or in any second century source, unless you count the modalistic monarchians, which you shouldn't, or in any third century Christian source, or in any basically first half of the fourth century Christian source, it's only deep into the so-called Arian controversy that people actually mention a triune God. This idea of God as tripersonal finally comes in that late in the game. So what he's about to say is most definitely not the mainstream Christian teaching for the last 2,000 years. In the best instance, It's the standard Christian teaching since the year 381. I talk about this in my book, What is the Trinity? But let's let him continue. This is in the Nicene Creed. It's in the Athanasian Creed. Creed These are in the Reformed Confessions, the 1689, the Westminster Confession. These are the, the, what I believe are, there's probably more, but I want to just give you four key definitional statements that I think espouse the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. So, here are the four assertions. Number one, God is one in his essential being, or nature, or essence. Now, I didn't have a chance to unpack that, but when I say being, nature, or essence, I'm basically saying it's the same thing. I'm just giving different ways to understand that, to help you understand what we mean by that. Being, nature, essence, those are all synonyms for the same concept. Number two, In this one divine being that is God, there are three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
These are not three individuals alongside of or separate from one another, but, and they're not three gods, but three distinct persons who share the same essence or being as the one true God. Just a couple of quick comments on that. It's not obviously a biblical teaching, number one. And number two, if only that meant some one set of claims. Google Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy Trinity or Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy Trinity, and you will see that this idea that there are three persons in one essence in God actually can be interpreted in some very different ways, in some logically incompatible ways. And so to just say that language doesn't fix in our minds any one theology. Number three, all three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, share equally the undivided essence or being or nature of God, which means that all three persons are co-equal and co-eternal in that undivided essence and being. If only that meant some one claim. I've got a whole chapter in my book, What is the Trinity, on different things that the term essence, usia in Greek, can mean. And on some of those ways, it looks like you're really just dealing with modalism. On other ways, it looks like you're dealing with tritheism. My point is there's lots of ways. So just to repeat the orthodox formulas doesn't fix in our mind any exact idea that we can actually argue about and try to discover whether that idea is in scripture or not. But number four, and this is where a lot of confusion, I think, in the debate came, there are certain personal attributes and functions by which the three persons are distinguished from one another. You can clearly see that in the Bible, and this has historically been called the economic function of the Trinity. There are distinct functions, there are distinct roles, there are distinct distinct ministries of each of the three persons within redemptive history. But that, again, does not mean that there is a hierarchy or an inferiority or a subordination in the essential essence or being of all three persons that share the one um, essence as being God. So this came up in the debate. Briefly, it's a mistake to think that I'm concluding that because the Father and Son function differently, therefore they must have different essences or they must be different sorts of things. My views are actually based on explicit and otherwise clear New Testament teachings, namely that the Father is the only true God and that the Son of God, the Messiah, is a man. And there isn't any teaching about how those are two different persons within the divine essence or two persons within the tripersonal God. So at this point, Dr. Cole goes on at some length about the differing roles of the persons of the Trinity, but it's really not to the point of our disagreement. So I've edited that out here. So we need to get our language clear. Clear language would be awesome. All three persons of the Trinity share equally and eternally the same essence, being, substance, whatever word you want to use, nature, as the one true God, while in function, role, ministry, the three persons perform differing tasks. And there's a false assumption that I think many non-Trinitarians make, and that is this. For Jesus the Son or the Holy Spirit to be truly and fully God... They must do the exact same things as the Father, 
in the exact same way, or there must be explicit teachings that say that you must worship the Holy Spirit, and therefore if there's no command to worship the Holy Spirit, therefore the Holy Spirit is not God. So no, neither one of those are my views or my arguments. Again, our views are based on explicit and otherwise clear New Testament teachings. In our dialogue, I made the following argument from worship. If New Testament theology is Trinitarian, you would expect to see the Trinity worshipped. As such, the triune God should be worshipped. There is nothing that even looks like that in the New Testament. And you might also expect to see each of the persons equally worshipped. But in fact, you don't see the Holy Spirit ever being worshipped And I'm not saying that there has to be an explicit command to worship the Holy Spirit. Just an assumption that one should worship the Holy Spirit would be good, or an implication that one should, or a portrayal of worship of the Holy Spirit, like we have a portrayal of religious worship being given to the Father and to the Son in Revelation 4 and 5. But we don't have that. Okay, so he continues. I can surely understand Dr. Tuggy's concern and his position. Obviously, when you read the Bible, just as a casual reader, you see words like the Father. You see Jesus coming in the flesh, being sent by the Father. You see the Holy Spirit being both sent by Jesus and the Father. So you see three persons. You can't deny that. I'm sorry, Dr. Cole, but yes, you can reasonably deny that there are three divine persons portrayed in Scripture. It's not clear that the Holy Spirit is a person at all. It is just God's Spirit and doesn't have a proper name. And it's clearly personified, but it doesn't actually seem to be an extra character in the action. And about Jesus, he's certainly a person, but he's a human person. And there aren't any good arguments to show that Jesus is presented as divine in the way that the one God is divine. That is, there aren't any sound scriptural arguments. And yet, there's language about the only true God and God, and so it can be confusing. Well, it's really not confusing. New Testament theology is unconfused the way we understand it. Whenever it talks about the one true God, the one God, the only true God, God Almighty, that's always the Father. And so that's pretty simple. There are a few other places where other beings are referred to as God, but we'll come to those in due time. I edited out here a discussion of modalism. He doesn't think modalism is true. That's good. You know, so the Father, Son, and Spirit are just sort of three ways that God interacts with the world or something like that. Yeah, the New Testament won't bear that interpretation. He does sense, I think, that his view looks tritheistic. He asserts that it's monotheistic, and yet he has three different persons, and therefore three different things, three individual realities, and each one of them is, he thinks, fully divine. And a thing which is fully divine is just a god. So it looks like they're three gods, and he feels this threatening off to the side, and so... He breaks out the old mystery card briefly. It is a mystery. It is, um, in some sense, incomprehensible to a finite human mind to fully understand the absolute essence, function, personhood of God in three persons. It is a mystery. We don't deny that. But the scripture is very clear in teaching that God is a trinity. 
history demonstrates that it's false, that there's a clear teaching of God as the Trinity, because you don't see Christians teaching this in the 100s and the 200s and the first part of the 300s. So you don't see people like Justin, Origen, Tertullian, Eusebius, Novation, etc. They don't teach that in God there are three equally divine persons. None of them do. They all teach that the one God is the Father. Then there are these lesser divine beings involved. That's not a view that Dr. Cole would want to defend. But anyway, this view that you can just easily deduce that God is tripersonal from the New Testament, honestly, it's part of what you could call small c Catholic ideology. It's something they want to be true. They're committed to its being true. And yet no one can show how it's true. So it's supposed to be true. But when you get into the details of the argument, it just falls flat. If there were a clear argument, you wouldn't have had all of this disagreement in the first three and a half Christian centuries. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Cole makes an argument based on the phrase, I am. So we have some texts like Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Okay, so in the Old Testament, Yahweh reveals himself as the I am and says, this is my name. My name is I am. My name is Yahweh. I alone am the one who defines existence. Ah, mm. So Isaiah 42, 8 says in the ESV translation, I am the Lord, that's Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So he gives his personal name there, but it's not I am, it's Yahweh. He says, I am Yahweh. I am is not a name. It's a singular personal pronoun and a present tense first person singular verb. It's not a name. If I say I am Dale Tuggy, I'm telling you my name is Dale Tuggy, not I am and also Dale Tuggy. Like I've got those two names. I think he's hearkening back in his mind to Exodus chapter three. Back there, Moses asks God, who am I supposed to say sent me to the people? And God says to Moses in Exodus 3.14, to tell them, I am who I am, or some translate, I will be who I will be. I understand that to be a refusal to give a name. He's just like, look and see what I'm going to do. Maybe the idea is there's some baggage in his giving a name, like they might import some assumptions into that about which God this is we're talking about. And God continues, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So the Hebrew verb here is related to, it sounds like the name Yahweh, it's Hayah, but um, I mean, look, properly speaking, this isn't a name of God, right? 
you don't see this picked up in scripture in the way that other divine names and titles are used. It's kind of a one-off thing. Now, there are passages where God says, I am, and you would understand that in the sense of I am he or I am the one. That's an assertion of uniqueness, basically. It's not a stating of one's name. But uh, Dr. Cole has some speculations about this phrase, I am, which he thinks is a divine name. The term I am describes one of the critical attributes of God. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the self-existent God who has no needs. And so when God reveals his name, his name is tied to his essence. Let me say that again. God's name is intrinsically tied to his essence. That's why the name is I am. I have no idea what he means by these claims, honestly. So everything that God is, is tied to his name as the I am. And so God's name, you could almost say, equals his essence. They're so intrinsically tied together. Again, I have no idea what that claim means. It's a very abstract and muddy, dark claim. In any case, Dr. Cole is driving towards what he thinks is the payoff of all of this when it comes to reading the New Testament. Although first he's going to zing off and speculate about another famous New Testament passage. In fact, he's cherry-picking pretty much the only verse in the whole New Testament that sounds Trinitarian at first glance. Now, why is that so important in the Old Testament that Yahweh, the I Am, is intrinsically linked to the name? Because when you get to the New Testament, we see that terminology of the name of God. And sometimes in our English upbringing and as Americans, and we don't have that familiarity with the Bible, when we hear the name, we, we don't think about the depths of what that means. Uh, my name is Sean. Uh, you, you go to places with a name, our, our church's name, Emmanuel Baptist Church. Uh, it's just, it's a, it's a name. But the name of God in the scriptures is his ultimate essence. It's, it's the totality. Everything he is is wrapped up in his name. And so we need to clearly understand that when we get to the New Testament. Because at the Great Commission, the very heart of what it means to be a Christian, to function as a Christian, our, our, our mission as Christians, the, the resurrected Christ gives us the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. Okay, stop right there. That should be a, a huge indicator to you about the name of God, Yahweh, the I Am, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, if you are a good grammarian and you did well in your English class, you would look at Jesus and say, you're not using very good English, <laughs> okay? Because... Jesus, you're saying that we're to baptize them in the name, singular. And then you give three persons, the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That doesn't make sense. What you should have said, Jesus, if you went to English class or went to synagogue and learned how to read and write, you would say, baptizing them in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because you have three distinct persons there, but you have one name. Why don't you use names in the names of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? 
Well, Jesus and Matthew, the inspired scripture writer, wants to make a theological point that ties us back to the Old Testament Yahweh, I am, the name of God. So when Jesus says we're to baptize them in the singular name and yet lists three distinct persons, you have a deeply profound theological understanding of the Trinity. All three persons share the same name. Now you may say, well, that doesn't make any sense because the, father, the, the Father's named the Father and Jesus is named Jesus and the Holy Spirit's named the Holy Spirit. They have three different names. We're, we're not understanding the, 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 the importance of that terminology name. Remember, name goes back to the very essence of who God is. So what Jesus is saying here is that when new believers come to faith in Christ, we baptize them in the singular name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what we're saying is that all three persons equally share the same divine essence and name of God. Oh my goodness, this argument has so many problems, I don't even know where to start. Look, first of all, it's a mistake to think that that statement that he quotes from the end of Matthew presupposes that there is some one name that all three of them have. If you're watching an old Western movie and the bad guys are trying to get out of Dodge and uh, the town sheriff comes along and decides to deputize some people to help him go chase the bad guys, and he deputizes them in the name of the governor, the president, and the constitution. Suppose he should say that. And then one of the guys raised his hand and said, wait, what's the name of that? Is it like Jed? Is it like Michael? What, what, what is this name you refer to, sir? No, it's not. It, it's misunderstanding this kind of uh, idiom to ask yourself what the name is. Right. So you don't want to come to this text and say, aha, the name there is Yahweh or it's a God or it's the I am or something. The use of this phrase, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it doesn't presuppose that there is some one name that all three of them share. And lest one think that I'm just making things up with my example, let me quote a bit here from an article by Trinitarian apologist Dr. Robert M. Bowman Jr. This is a piece of his entitled, Triadic New Testament Passages and the Doctrine of the Trinity. Bowman mentions that some interpreters, both Trinitarian and Oneness Pentecostal, presuppose that some one name is being referred to here. And then Bowman says, however, the singular term name here is used distributively in reference to the three names given, not in reference to an unspecified name. And then he cites uh, Nolan's commentary on the Greek text of Matthew. Elsewhere in the Bible, the singular name refers to two or more persons with different names. So, quote, the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 48, 16. Quote, the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ruth 1, 2, King James Version. He says, compare with Exodus 23, 13, Deuteronomy 18, 20, 1 Samuel 7, 9, 1 Chronicles 17, 8, and Luke 6, 22. Bowman continues, at most, one could argue that a singular name for all three persons was possible, not that such is grammatically required. Now, of course, Bowman has his own ways of trying to squeeze some Trinitarian juice out of this little lemon. But, you know, negatively, 
pretty much all Unitarian Christians would make the following points. It doesn't say the Father and Son and Spirit are the same God. It doesn't say the three of them together are one God. It doesn't say or imply or presuppose that the three of them have the same essence. In fact, we know what these three terms refer to based on the rest of the New Testament. The Father is the one true God. John 17, 3, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, etc., etc. The Son is the man, Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is God's Spirit. So it's not really a someone else. So, I mean, yes, it does sound at first glance Trinitarian. If you come to the text with a Trinitarian assumption, you're going to say, wow, this fits my theory well. But, you know, it doesn't actually support it at all. But Dr. Cole continues to argue on the basis of this text. Now, if you are a non-Trinitarian, why would Jesus say to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? It seemed like you would only say, baptize in the name of the Father, because the Father alone is Yahweh, and he's the only one who has the name God. You can't put Jesus in there. You can't put the Holy Spirit in there because they do not share the same divine essence as the Father. They aren't God. They're subservient to the Father. But right there in the baptismal confession, you've got the doctrine of the Trinity. No, I mean, at most you have a passage that at first glance seems to fit with Trinity theories. But the thing is, the more you look at this passage carefully, the more you can see it's pretty clearly consistent with a Unitarian understanding of New Testament theology as well. Since, as I admit, it does at first glance sound Trinitarian, it's a perfectly fair question to ask the Unitarian what he or she thinks is going on in this passage. As for myself, I'm not entirely clear what's going on. I'll give you two different Unitarian readings of the passage. There's a very interesting comment on this passage from the great 19th century Harvard Unitarian scholar Andrews Norton in his book, A Statement of Reasons for Not Believing the Doctrines of Trinitarians Concerning the Nature of God and the Person of Christ, 3rd edition, 1859. Norton quotes the passage and then says this, Here, as in many other passages, the error and obscurity of the version in other words, the King James translation, have favored the imposition of a sense upon the passage which the original does not suggest. To baptize in the name of another is to baptize by authority from him as his representative. But this, every scholar knows, is not the sense of our Savior's direction. The Greek word rendered name is, in this passage, as often in the scriptures, redundant. It is used pleonastically by an idiom of the Hebraistic Greek, in which the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and New Testament are written. We have not the same turn of expression in our own language. In the original, it adds nothing to the sense of the passage. When literally rendered into another language in which the same idiom does not exist, it tends only to obscure the meaning. It should not, therefore, appear in a translation into English. But even if the term name be retained, there's no ground for the rendering baptizing them in the name. The Greek proposition ace, in Greek letters basically EIS, should be rendered to. The whole passage may thus be translated, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. The meaning of which is, 
Go and make converts of men of all nations, dedicating them by baptism, through which they are to make a solemn public profession of their faith, to the worship of the Father, the only true God, to the religion which he has taught men by his Son, and to the enjoyment of those holy influences and spiritual blessings which accompany its reception. He has some more negative remarks about what the passage doesn't say, but let me stop there. So he thinks what's being said is that a disciple is baptized to or into God, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God. That makes sense. It's a public initiation. It's a public profession of faith. These are, you could say, three core elements of the faith. Belief in one God, the Father. Belief in the unique Messiah, the man Jesus. And belief in God's Spirit, which has been given since Jesus' ascension, um, and which makes a real difference in the lives of believers. That reading does make sense. It does fit with the Unitarian understanding of New Testament theology and Christology. Uh, The term ace can mean to or into, but it can also mean in. So I'm not sure if just pointing out uh, the use of ace there really settles the interpretation. Another way to take it would be that authority is what's in view because Jesus in verse 18, right before mentions that. So ESV version, Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, obviously by God. So he says, go therefore, since I've been given that authority and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So that's the whole passage. It could have to do with authority, right? It's the authority that Jesus has been given from God. So it's mentioning the ultimate source of the authority, the Father the more immediate source of the authority, which is the Son. And then in a different sense, the source of the authority is the action of God's Spirit. So it's mentioning the three uh, in connection with that authority in which the disciples can initiate people into this new deal. We need to let Dr. Cole continue, but also I would just make the comment that this looks like an example of what I call an early Christian unity slogan. There wasn't any institutional unity. There wasn't any system of bishops yet. But what all Christians have in common are their trust in the one God, salvation through the unique Son of God, and then the blessing, the power of God's Spirit. So one God, one Lord, one Spirit. You see these three elsewhere mentioned in the New Testament, not because they're one God, but because these are three wonderful realities shared by all believers everywhere. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Cole turns to the Gospel according to John. Now, let's go to the Gospel of John, because I think the Gospel of John teaches most clearly and explicitly the doctrine of the Trinity. 
explicitly. I'm sorry if that's just clearly a mistake, but maybe he didn't mean to say that. Anyway, he wants to say that it's clear, that it's somehow clearly implied or presupposed. So he reads most of John 1, which I'm going to assume the listener is familiar with. He says that this shows Jesus to be eternal and in fellowship with God, who's a different person. And yet Jesus is, quote, fully God, uh, not merely divine in some lesser sense, but Jesus counts as God himself. Uh, I mean, I don't think this reading makes any sense because we know the one true God in this very book is the Father. So if Jesus is fully God and Jesus is God himself, then Jesus would just be the Father. Things identical to the same thing are identical to each other. So if the Father just is God and the Son also just is God, then it follows that the Father just is the Son. So it looks like there's a serious coherence problem with what he's suggesting. And there's a serious coherence problem with his suggested understanding of the fourth gospel. But notice also that now we're talking about, quote, who Jesus is here. We're not talking about God as Trinity. So in a sense, the subject has been changed. He's going to focus now on just a component part of uh, Trinitarian ideas. And now he does here attempt a grammatical refutation of my suggested reading of John 1, which you heard in the dialogue. Oh, and again, let me just say this for the um, personification language. All the masculine pronouns in John 1, him, he, logically mean that the logos, Jesus, is a he, not an it, or a mere personification. I mean, this is just a baffling argument. I mean, for one thing, it's begging the question. That's the very point at issue. But for another thing, it's just deciding to ignore what personification is. If I hear a guy talking about his boat and referring to it as she and her, I should not come to you and argue that he really thinks that boat is a self because he refers to the boat as her and she, or by a proper name, I don't know, Catherine. This is precisely what personification is, using personal language for something that's not a person. So if I'm right that the word, the logos in John 1, is being personified, that's just to say that personal language is being used of it, such as personal pronouns. So this is not a problem for my reading. It's just part of the reading. What John is saying here is that Jesus shares the same essence or being of the Father, although he is still a distinct in person. The wording that John uses is very specific in the Greek text. It gives us no ambiguity. Jesus is God. Not that Jesus is God-like or simply divine or has a divine nature, but that Jesus is fully and absolutely God. Dr. Cole here is just insisting on viewing this text through 4th century goggles. Say, look, it's obviously a same-essence claim. No, it's not obvious at all. It doesn't use the word essence. And again, as I pointed out in the dialogue, it's not obvious that the Logos is supposed to be the same person as the Son. He's presupposing that the Logos is supposed to be the same self as the Son. And then he thinks when it says, Theos ain't halagos, God was the word, that that's a claim that the Son is the same essence as the Father, but still yet a different person. That's not how I read it. But anyway, we're not really getting anywhere as far as our disagreement. I mean, Paul echoes this in Colossians 2.9. For in him, speaking of Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All the fullness of who God is dwells bodily. 
So Jesus is not just divine, but shares the same essence of God, but yet in a body. He's distinct in person. He came in the flesh. Sorry, Dr. Cole. Those are just fourth century ideas being smashed on top of a first century text. As for Paul's claim in Colossians 2.9, Unitarian Christians like me agree with that. Like this book, John says, it's the Father, it's God in Christ doing these works. It's God working through Christ. It's God revealing himself through Christ. So the fullness of the deity, that's God dwelling in him, and in a sense, him dwelling in God. That's not a two-natures Christology like we see in the 5th century council at Chalcedon. In a sense, it's just a way of talking about God and Jesus cooperating together. Here, Dr. Cole launches into an argument, which I'm going to just cut and summarize. He quotes Hebrews 1.3, that he, the Son of God, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He says, look, radiance, uh, that implies being fully divine. It implies being the very ultimate source of glory. It can't just be being God-like, the exact imprint of his nature. I mean, look... It's obvious to me that neither of these expressions implies being divine in the same exact way that the one God is divine. And in fact, this whole book distinguishes strongly between Jesus and God. So let's move on. So Dr. Cole is still listing what he says are a series of truths from John 1. So he continues. Let's look at the fourth truth in John's prologue. The eternal word became flesh at a point in time in history. Yeah, I think he means that there's an incarnation theory presupposed there, so that the Logos is the same self as the man Jesus, and that's precisely what I deny. So that's just begging the question in this argument. He goes on to his fifth point. Truth number five, and this is the one where I think Dr. Tuggy struggled. Jesus is the unique Son who is God. Verse 18, John solidifies these four truths and reiterates the full deity of Jesus as God. Notice how John protects the deity of Christ. No one has seen God except God. Now, that, that sounds weird. And, and Dr. Tuggy brought that up. That sounds like weird language. Well, it sounds like weird language unless that's the language that the Holy Spirit wanted John to write so that it would convey the theological meaning of the Trinity. No one has seen the Father except for Jesus. This is the first time John uses the term father to describe God. I mean, all throughout this, he's been using the Greek word theos, which is simply God. And we have to make the assumption that when the word theos is used there, John is talking about God the Father. And again, the Father is a distinct person from the Son. They're not the same person, but they share the same essence. And notice what that verse says in verse 18. I think the ESV probably captures it the best. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God. Okay, who's that? Who's the God there? The Father. So God is the Father. No one's ever seen God the Father except for the only God who's at the Father's side. The only God has made him known. So you've got God the Father and you've got Jesus as the only God at the Father's side who has made the Father known. So you've got... Jesus being called here the only God. Literally, it's the Greek word monogenes, which can be translated unique, one and only, only begotten. 
And so what Dr. Tuggy argued in the debate was there's a textual variant there. When the ancient scribes were translating texts, they could maybe get tired and, and move a word here and there that would, would, would definitely change the meaning. Uh, for example, what they would say in this passage is that the word son in Greek looks very similar to the word God. And so the textual variant would be that it doesn't say the only God, it just says the only son, which would definitely change the meaning of that. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that Jesus is the only son who's at the Father's side, but there's a theological point being made in the original language if it says Jesus is the only God. And all of the modern translations take that to be God. For example, the New American Standard, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, the NIV, while not literal, actually probably gives a best interpretive understanding of that language. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. That's more of a dynamic equivalent, but notice how the NIV makes it very clear that who is himself God? Jesus, the Son. So regardless of how you take monogenes, whether it's only begotten, unique, one and only, Notice the wording that John uses. Jesus, the unique, the only Son of God, the eternal Logos, is God. Notice that Jesus is not called the Father. That's confusing the person, but that Jesus is God. And notice again that Jesus is also distinct from the Father in person because he's at the Father's side. How could Jesus be at the Father's side if he's not another distinct person? And how can Jesus be called the only begotten God if he does not share the same essence as the Father? So if the Father and the Son are one and the same person, how can they be at each other's side? The very language communicates two distinct persons. Also, the Son explains or exegetes or makes known the Father. If they're the same person, how does this logically make sense with the pronouns? Who's made whom known? Well, the Son has made the Father known. Is the Father the same person as the Son? No, they're distinct persons. Is the Father God? Yes. Is Jesus God? Yes. A Unitarian would concede that the Son was at the Father's side since Jesus was created, and he's distinct from the Father. Well, sure, but not at the time of creation. There were no human beings at the time of creation. And the Jesus of this book is a human being. He says he's a man who told you the truth that he heard from God. But they would deny that Jesus is God or shares the same essence as God, because in their view, only God the Father is the only true God. Now, there's a lot going on here. And again, there is no really clear target here as far as the theology he's actually defending. There is no clearly coherent view here. So he thinks the Father is the one true God, and no one has ever seen God, and yet Jesus is also the one true God, but Jesus has been seen. That doesn't make sense. That's to attribute incoherence to this author. Now, it could make sense if you think the Father and Son are different parts of God, so one part of God can be seen and another part of God can't be but that's against Trinitarian orthodoxy and specifically the requirement of divine simplicity. I won't go into that now. All the NIV translation proves is that a confused misreading can be enshrined into orthodoxy when it fits into people's presumptions. 
It is true that most modern translations go with the reading, the only God here instead of the only son. And the reason they do that is because they're, in my view, kind of over rigidly following the rules of textual criticism, which tend to favor the more difficult reading and to generally go with the oldest manuscripts. And in the oldest Greek manuscripts we have, which aren't terribly old, I believe they're fourth century, does say the only begotten God. Now, what Dr. Cole's not telling you is that a lot of traditional exegesis here was based on the assumption that the word translated only begotten referred to eternal generation. And modern scholars have now discovered that this phrase just is a way of asserting uniqueness. So the unique son or the unique God. And so they've just thrown in the trash can a whole world of traditional interpretation just in the 20th, 21st centuries. That's correct, though. I mean, it is a phrase that just means unique. Um, But look, you can't have John saying Jesus is the unique God when he says the Father is the unique God in chapter 17. It's incoherent because, again, the Father would just be the Son. But we know they're not numerically the same because they're different. They're different in a bunch of ways in this book. So we need an interpretation of this that makes sense. The whole sentence in the ESV is, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Yeah, most modern versions go with that, and it fits with Trinitarian orthodoxy, let's be honest. But for instance, the New Revised Standard is honest enough to put a footnote in right here, and it says, Other ancient authorities read, It is an only Son, God, or It is the only Son who has made him known. Right. That last one sounds like something John would actually say. He doesn't think Jesus is the only God, but he does think he's the unique Christ, the unique Messiah. This is a gigantic central theme in the book. And you should know that this just isn't a theologically motivated dodge by Unitarian Christians like me. As a matter of fact, I was just reading a major commentary on the fourth gospel called The Gospel of John, a Theological Commentary by the Dutch uh, Reformed scholar Herman Ritterbos, Ritterbos. And it's based on really a lifetime of thinking through this gospel and what it means. And on page 59, he says that this reading just doesn't make sense in light of the rest of the book. And it sa- he says it forces us to choose the reading of the later Greek manuscripts, which is the reading of the Latin and Syriac versions, which is, he says, monogenes huios, unique son or only begotten son. So Trinitarians are divided on this. Many cannot help but say, wow, this is great for our theory. We've got to go with the reading. Jesus is the only God here or the only begotten God. And others, you know, in my view, are a little more honest. And they pick a reading which isn't as well attested in the extant texts, but which actually fits better with the whole book. So let's retrace John's theological statements about the Logos, the Word. Number one, Jesus has always existed as the eternal Son of God. Number two, Jesus is a distinct person from the Father, but yet shares intimate fellowship with the Father. Number three, Jesus is fully and absolutely God. Number four, the eternal Word became flesh at a point in time in history. And number five, Jesus is the unique Son who is God. I mean, those are Dr. Cole's views, but I don't think he's actually shown any of those from the first chapter of the Gospel according to John. And I think he's ignored a lot of evidence that Jesus is not God, which is in this very book. 
When the Trendies podcast returns, Dr. Cole follows through with his argument from I am statements in the New Testament. John's gospel is centered around seven, what we call I am statements, where Jesus stands up and says in their Greek language, ego, I, me, I, I myself am, and then he gives a statement. Let's remember back to Exodus. How did God reveal himself, his eternal name to Moses? I am. So when Jesus comes in the flesh and makes the pronouncement of saying, I am, What is he in fact doing? Is he just basically saying, I am the bread of life? Jesus is assuming the divine name of God, the I am. He is in the flesh as the I am, which means that if we go back to the name of God, I am being equal to his actual essence, Jesus is claiming that he in fact is Yahweh. He shares the divine name of God. Therefore, he is God, yet he is in the flesh. Oh, man. Um, Let's slow this down a little. He thinks I am is a name. I don't think that's exactly right. But suppose that it was true that only God could say I am. And then Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, the life, etc., and so clearly Jesus is saying that he has the same name as God and so and that he has the same essence as God. I don't think any of those things follow. And one problem is when Jesus says I am the way the truth the life or I am the light of the world, he's not ascribing any name to himself. He's rather describing himself as the way the truth life as the light of the world. That's not using a name. If I say I am tired, I am not saying, uh, by the way, I'm God and also I'm tired. I'm just ascribing tiredness to myself. This writer, his main thesis is that Jesus is the unique Christ, the son of God, end of chapter 20. That's what he's really driving at. And um, he doesn't conclude, and the good guys in the narrative don't conclude from Jesus's I am this and I am that statements that he's claiming to be God himself or to have the divine essence. Frankly, this reading seems like a wild overreach, just, you know, based on an eager desire to find something like uh, creedal Trinitarianism in this book. So Dr. Cole now proceeds to list some texts where he thinks Jesus is claiming to have God's proper name, and so to be God himself. So for example, John 6, 32-35, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, obviously, you see two distinct persons there. You see the Father being referred to as the one who 
sent the true bread. And in the Old Testament, who was it that sent the bread to the Israelites in the wilderness? It was the I am. Because contextually, God had just revealed himself as the I am to Moses in the burning bush. So Yahweh, the I am, the divine God whose name is eternal I am, sent the bread in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, I'm the true bread that's come down from heaven from my Father. Now again, the assumption is that there's two persons. Obviously, the Father sends Jesus. And so the Unitarian would say, well, basically, yeah, there's two persons there. But Jesus is being sent by the Father. Therefore, he's inferior to the Father. He's merely God's Messiah that was sent down to give life for the world. But he's not equal with God. How can Jesus be equal with God if he's sent from God, the Father? Well, when Jesus stands up and says, Ego, I, me, I, I, myself am the bread of life, it is no mistake that Jesus is equating himself with Yahweh, the very name and essence of God. I am the bread of life. A claim to having the divine essence? I mean, this is just, again, a wild overreading. To have the divine essence is to be God himself. God himself in this book, the one true God, is the Father, chapter 17, but really the whole book. Jesus is saying that he's the bread of life, etc., as sent by God. And again, just because you say the phrase, I am this or I am that, it doesn't mean you're claiming to have the divine name. It doesn't even mean that if you say, I am, and then nothing follows that in the sentence, that there's no predicate involved. You can see this right in John 9, 9. If you want to see it with your own eyes, just Google interlinear John 9, colon 9. This is the aftermath of Jesus healing the man who was born blind. So I'll pick it up in John 9, 8 in the ESV. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He, the man healed, kept saying, I am the man. Now in Greek, that's just, Ego, a me. I am. Idiomatically, it means, I am he, or I'm the one. I'm the one you're asking about. Right, so even in John 8, 58, when Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, it means I am the one. Which one is he? Again, read chapter 4, read the whole book. He's supposed to be the unique Christ. He's saying that his being the Christ was known to God even in the time of Abraham. And all throughout these I am statements, and there's seven of them, I'm the light of the world, I am the door for the sheep, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I am the vine. But notice the shepherd discourse in John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the Father are one. Okay, two distinct persons there. Again, all throughout John, two distinct persons. The Father is distinct from the Son. Jesus in economic function has a different role than the Father. Jesus is the one that came as the shepherd to call the sheep, to die for the sheep, to lay down his sheep, to give them eternal life. But notice how Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand, and no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is a great passage on eternal security, by the way, that we're in the double grip 
of Jesus and the Father. So how can we have eternal life from both Jesus' hand and the Father's hand? Well, in verse 30, Jesus makes the profound statement, I and the Father are one. Not one and the same person. How can they be the same person? How can Jesus say, I and the Father are one, meaning they're the same person? There's the distinction in person all the way throughout John. How can he say they're one? What does that mean? Well, the way it's worded in the Greek text is neuter rather than masculine. If John would have used one in the masculine, it would have referred to Jesus and the Father being the same person, which again is a denial of the Trinity. They're two distinct persons, but they share the same ontological oneness as God. What Jesus is saying is, I and the Father are not the same person, but I and the Father are one in essence, in nature, in being. We both share equally the fullness of God because I just used Jesus as saying the I am statement to show that I share the divine name of Yahweh, the way that God revealed himself to Moses in the Old Testament from the burning bush as the I am. Again, as you can hear, he just cannot look at the text without bringing in this fourth century and later idea of God as three persons in one essence, this idea of a tripersonal God. But that idea just isn't in the text. And he's very quick to jump to the claim that when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, that that's not asserting that they're the same self, but rather that they're the same essence, or maybe even the same God. But of course, that's just not what it means. And the better commenters here will tell you that in the context, the meaning is that the Father and the Son, God and the Son of God, are about the same business. They're after the same purposes. They're unified in their action. And you can see this same idiom, the same expression, right in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So picking up in verse 8, again, ESV, Paul is arguing against divisions where people line up behind one famous leader or another. So in verse 8, Paul argues, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. One essence? No, that's not his point. I mean, it happens to be that the man Apollos and the man Paul would be one essence if there are such things as essences. That's not his point. It's that they're one in purpose. In fact, the two of them are one in purpose with God, and God is playing the greater role. God should really be getting the glory for the end result, Paul is saying. So yeah, just as Jesus explains in John, um, he's working with God, God's working with him. Jesus is taking direction and only does what he sees the Father doing, right? They're about the same business. There is no claim to the Father and the Son being equally divine in the text that he referred to. And then you get to the end of John, and I mentioned this in the debate, John 20, 28, when Thomas makes that confession, my Lord and my God. Notice that he calls Jesus God, and, and Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't say, Thomas, you're going too far. Only God is the Father. You're making me equal to God. You're confessing me as God. How dare you do that? I'm only a, a resurrected man. Don't dare call me God. How can you call me God? 
basically what Dr. Tuggy said was that when Thomas made that confession, he was saying to Jesus, you're my Lord, but he wasn't calling Jesus my God. He was giving praise vertically to God who had sent Jesus. He, he basically takes that whole text and makes it say something it doesn't say. Thomas very clearly addresses Jesus as my Lord and my God. Thomas doesn't say, hey, I praise you, Jesus, that you're my Lord. And then I give thanks to the Father for sending you because only the Father's God. You're not God. You're just the Lord that God sent. No, Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God, that my God is addressed to Jesus. Not vertically up to the Father, but to the resurrected Christ who's standing right in front of him. And Jesus doesn't correct him and say, now wait a minute, God's my God and God's your God, but I'm not God. There's only one true God and his name is the Father. Again, multiple problems with this argument. One is I think he's assuming monotheosism, as I explained in our dialogue He's presupposing that in the New Testament, there's only one who can properly be referred to as God, so that anyone who's properly referred to as God just is just has to be the one God himself. That's false, according to the New Testament. You can see this from John chapter 10, when Jesus talks about people being called gods, and you can see it in Hebrews 1, when someone other than God is referred to as God, referring back to Psalm 45. So we know that monotheosism, that there's only one who can properly be referred to as God, is false according to the New Testament. Of course, monotheism is true, that there's only one God. That's explicitly the Father in this very book. Now, what's happening when Thomas confesses before the risen Jesus, my Lord and my God? He does say that to Jesus. Literally, that's true. Is he calling Jesus his God? Maybe he is, if he's using the word God in a subordinate sense, like you see in Hebrews 1, your throne, O God. Um, If he's using the word God to mean someone who might have a God over him, then he could be calling Jesus his Lord and his God. But I suggested what makes more sense in light of the book of John is that he's recognizing Jesus as the risen Lord, and he's recognizing the one God working through him as has been said earlier in the book. The author then would be portraying him here as confessing the one God and the one Lord, as you see in Paul. But either way, it's just no help for a Trinity theory at all. I guess this saying here is consistent with the Trinity theory, but if you're trying to support some speculation on which the three are equally divine and the one God is the three of them put together, there just isn't any support here from this text. And I have to say, again, it's perverse to ignore the context, because just before this, Jesus has said that he's ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So we know in this very passage, basically, that Jesus has a God over him. He's under a God. That excludes his being God. That excludes his being fully divine. God, just by definition in Jewish theology, can't be under any other. He's the king of the hill. He's the top of the heap. So that's before the Thomas incident. And right after, the author tells you what his main purpose is. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, it's impossible to say why he would make that his main point if his real point is that Jesus is God Almighty or that Jesus is a person within God, or something like that. What he says 
is perfectly friendly to what biblical Unitarians like me think. Yes, we think that is the main point, that Jesus is God's Christ. And the word Jesus here, as in the whole New Testament, refers to the man, not to an eternal divine person, not to a God-man. As he says back in chapter 8, a man who told you the truth that he heard from God. Why doesn't Jesus correct Thomas? Well, on either understanding that I just presented, he doesn't need to correct Thomas. If Thomas is referring to him as my God in a subordinate sense, like one in the Old Testament might refer to a king of Israel, no, Thomas doesn't need correcting. That's precisely what Jesus is. He's a God in that sense. If Thomas is confessing Jesus as the one Lord, the Lord Messiah, the Lord Christ, and also confessing the one God who's just raised him and has been working in him all along, that's right. He gets it. Doesn't need correction. So all throughout the Gospel of John, it should be a, an open and shut case. Well, dear listener, based on what you've heard so far, do you think it's an open and shut case that the fourth gospel teaches that God is the Trinity? So there's one God, which is the Father and Son Spirit in some sense altogether. There are three divine persons, each of whom equally shares the divine essence and so has all the divine attributes. Do you think that's an open and shut case? I don't. And that, in fact, that clashes with the clear implication of John 17, 1 through 3, that the only true God just is the Father himself. That's not logically compatible with the one true God being the Trinity. If the Father just is the one true God, then the Trinity isn't. And if the Trinity just is the one true God, then the Father isn't. We know that because... If they were both to be real, we know that the Father and the Trinity would not be the same thing, right? Trinity is by definition tripersonal. The Father is by definition unipersonal. So you can't equate the God and the Trinity as numerically the same. So at most, one of them can be numerically identical to the one true God. Yeah, but it's clear throughout which one that is. And notice that my case, even about just the gospel according to John, is based on clear texts whereas Dr. Cole's case is based on difficult and problematic texts. And that's a pattern that's going to continue in the next episode. But here's another clear text from John. In John 8:54, Jesus says, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. The God of the Jews, the one true God, the creator in this book, the one who sent his Son, the one who gave Jesus his message, his calling, his commission, his power, the one who raised him, that's the Father. It's a clear assumption of the whole book, and occasionally that assumption comes to the surface as here. Next week on the Trinity's podcast, Dr. Cole appeals to several texts from the writings of Paul. In his view, not only John, but also Paul, clearly implies that the one God is the tripersonal God, the Trinity. Is he right, or am I right, that there just is no idea of a tripersonal God in any of these texts? This week's thinking music has been the track Street Dancing by Timecrawler82. 
As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinities podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com trinities. For listening, we'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>